You're listening to an Mpavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to this event. It's very exciting to have you here. My name's Lucy. I'm an architecture student and part of M Pavilion's Young Curators Program. I am delighted and honoured to be joined this afternoon by Bettina Robinson, Alexander Douthwaite and Paul Ha, um, who are three brilliant architects that I'll introduce more comprehensively in a minute. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land on which M Pavilion and the Naomi Milgram Foundation reside. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Our discussion today is titled The Matter with Materials Beneath the Sustainability Buzzword, which is a play on materials being made of matter with all the implications of life cycle, performance, and embodied energy. And also the material choices matter to us, affecting our emotional connections to place. Today we'll aim to unravel the complexity of designing for endurance and argue, perhaps, that both physical and cultural longevity should be a core criterion in a common sense definition of sustainability. In their architectural practice, Bettina, Alexander and Paul have each taken a firm position against the mediocrity of our throwaway, knockdown, rebuild construction culture. Bettina is the Director of Interiors at Breathe Architecture, where she oversees the design of all projects, including single and multi-res housing, commercial and hospitality projects. She's also the author of the Open Source Guide to Sustainable Materials, which was an indispensable resource for me and my peers throughout our architectural education. Breathe Architecture is Australia's most awarded sustainable architecture and design firm. They are committed to carbon neutral buildings and all new projects will be certified carbon neutral in operation and strive to reduce material impact by optimizing building performance, dematerialization and through considered material specification. Paul Ha is the sole practitioner is a sole practitioner who has spent 43 years immersed in deep green practice, operating inside small local economic and social systems. And in his early career, he worked closely with Indigenous Australian communities. Paul is also the co-founder of the not-for-profit enterprise Ceres Fairwood that retails and promotes local farm-grown and urban salvage wood. Uh, he, in addition, he's the winner of the 2020 Australian Sustainability Award for Lifetime Achievement, which we'd like to congratulate him for. That's a huge honour, Paul. Right. Um, Alexander is the project lead for sustainable communities at the Prince's Trust Australia. Prince's Trust Australia is committed to helping communities create better places to live by delivering new exemplar developments and championing sustainable building and environmental projects through training programs. He's also the vice chair of the Australian chapter of INBAO, the International Network for Traditional Building, Architecture and Urbanism. Um, which is a global network dedicated to creating better places to live through traditional building, architecture and urbanism. The work they produce is unlike much of the contemporary development and construction we see happening in our cities. And we must therefore be particularly interested in their motivations, approaches, successes and failures. For context, the global construction industry uses roughly 50% of the raw materials extracted each year. It creates a third of the world's overall waste and is responsible for 40% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. In the next decade, 230 billion buildings will be built or renovated to um, 
to meet the needs of a growing population coming out of poverty. Material questions, construction processes, and design choices become existentially important when considered at that scale. The scale and scope of the problems is quite daunting and hugely multivariate. So to begin our conversation, I'd like to invite the speakers firstly to provide a bit more context into the problems of the built environment that initially alerted you to the necessity of designing differently and how you'd characterize your approach and your ambitions for your work in response to that context. Um, Bettina, would you like to start? Thank you. Um, so at Breathe, I guess it's, it's ingrained in us to constantly challenge the, the status quo. And I get what drives us is that we care deeply about people and the planet. And that really stems into all the work that we do. We, majority of our work is in multi-residential design. And um, an example is in 2014, we built an apartment building called The Commons, which really challenged the, the status quo of the current developer market that was happening in Melbourne. And so we, we, we felt that buildings were getting built for profit and not for people. And we, do, we did think that there was a balance between the two. You can still develop and build for profit, but also for people at the same time. And so in that, in that building, some of, the, challenge, some of the, the changes that we instigated was removing basements and car parks by having a building that was positioned on public transport corridors and bike corridors. Uh, we removed laundries out of apartments. We took air conditioning out of apartments. We prioritised the common areas in, in space for common areas. Any material that didn't need to go into the purpose, the building and didn't serve a purpose, we removed that material. So, for example, plasterboard ceilings. They're not, they weren't required. They're really just hiding services that could be beautifully curated and instead embracing the, the tall ceilings that you can gain from a concrete ceiling. And just all of these, these little moves that really were working towards a building that was environmentally, socially, um, and economically sustainable too. And in hope that to buck the trend in what was um, typically affordable apartment housing was, was of low quality and it was perpetuating the, the mentality that apartment living is not desirable in the city and encouraging more, encouraging the urban sprawl to really be part of our culture, which, which you know, it's something that we need to change. We need to return to the cities and make the spaces that we live in our cities really quality. Um, so I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but <laughs> I think, um, yeah, it's always, it's, it's people on the planet, it's pretty, pretty easy to be driven by that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks, Bettina. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think for me, the, uh, the fundamental problem with how we build today uh, is that we don't build to last. Uh, if you look up at the horizon over there um, and see some of the more sort of egregious examples of the crystalline towers that are going up or go out to the outskirts of Melbourne and see the sort of brick veneer empire that we're building out there, um, we're not designing in an enduring way and we're not designing uh, for communities and the real needs of communities for a place uh, to call home. Um, so the work that we do at the Princess Trust Australia is always designing not 
for com communities, but with communities, uh, looking at what they want uh, for their suburb, town, place, and putting that into practice. Um, we're doing that on a development up in, uh, up in Sydney, uh, 75 new uh, social housing uh, dwellings uh, with all the high sustainability ratings, but also uh, with a commitment to designing for context and for place. Uh, not trying to stand out, but trying to create a lasting human settlement uh, for that community there. Um, I think uh, when it comes to the question of sustainability, the word sustainability, the very definition of it, is something that endures through time. Uh, and materials uh, are fundamental to that, um, but really it, it comes down to community for us. No, that's, that's tremendous. Yeah, look, I, um, nearly 50 years ago now, I, I got it up at the road at Melbourne Uni, I got an, a really, uh, in my studies, I got an awesome grounding in material science and also in appropriate design technologies for a future which at that time already um, was seen as needing to reduce uh, its use of fossil fuels, even, even that you know, 45, 50 years ago. Uh, and I also learnt that architecture, it can be really a rich and creative um, and uh, an inclusive process. So it's not just a product, uh, a, a built thing, um, it, but really can be a process that builds people and builds community uh, at, at the same time as it's building place. So with that, you know, really um, thing, that, that education that I was really quite grateful for, I found myself very attracted to a bunch of people um, who had dreamt up series, which you may know, up series community environment park up in Brunswick. And that was really for me my sort of first laboratory or place where I could learn um, around these things that sort of lit my fire at the time. And it was also very much uh, linked with the fledgling, at the time, fledgling permaculture movement of Australia and now it's an international movement. Um, and then I found myself up north, uh, working uh, in Aboriginal, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities in really quite remote parts of Australia. And that was really a joy for me. I was able to um, support the communities there to design their homes for themselves and then to build them using materials straight out of the local bush, which was a lot of fun. And then back in Melbourne, I was really quite anxious and worried about the sort of uh, the emergence of you know, all the information about climate change and, um, and really frustrated by how slowly uh, our national and international kind of um, uh, leaders are, are, are addressing that. And um, so I found really the only way that I felt that I could be meaningful in that as, a, as an architect and as a small farmer was to look to really quite small local projects where I could, um, uh, you know, uh, work um, and, uh, and so they sort of were and, and, and addressing what really was a huge global issue, but I felt like I could only address it locally. And so I've been involved with um, the Mullum Creek Eco Housing Project in Donvale for about 17 years, and that's a project where, um, not unlike, the, very similar in some ways to um, what Bettina and Alex have described with their projects, it's a one where we really worked very hard with a swag of architects and builders and engineers and property owners to uh, help them to mitigate the impacts in their, in their housing or their dwelling experience, not only in the operation of those builds, but also up front and importantly in the materials uh, that go to, 
to um, the impacts or the, or, uh, um, that are embodied in the materials that the homes were built with. And then also been involved a lot with series Fairwood, which uh, Lucy described really well. <laughs> Well, thank you for those introductions. Um, continuing the idea of like deliberate choices and longevity in material science. Um, longevity is a way to keep material resources in the building system as long as possible. Yet today, buildings are frequently, frequently demolished in a matter of decades, um, as they're no longer programmatically fit for purpose or have become materially run down and defunct. I'd like to know how in today's state of accelerated social and technological technological change, we can begin to think about buildings in terms of centuries instead of decades and future-proof our designs. Bettina, the focus at Breathe is on life cycle design, considering materials from extraction and processing through to disposal and reuse. When you're selecting materials for a project like a multi-res, how do you weigh up durability with future-proofing and future flexibility? So material selection, um it really, what drives it is largely is the typology of the building that you're working on. So multi-residential design, we see something that should last at least 100 years. Uh, it's, and so to design something with that purpose and then it's, it's also a space for someone to live for um, different people to come through the building over its lifetime. So it's also its ability to adapt to different people and different lifestyles. And so for longevity, it's really important in multi-residential design. Um, so we look at materials that are robust, that can be re easily reinstated in situ on site, um, and also that has the ability to exceed trends as well. The best material, the most sustainable material is one that stays in the building for its entire life um, and is, you know, still in use, is in still, still beautiful. And, and if you can then design for disassembly and um, its ability for that material to still be recycled at the end of that life, then even better. And so if you take the example of a recycled timber floorboard, so apartment buildings that we're designing now, we've got recycled timber floorboards that have come out of demol demolished um, warehouses or Victorian houses that are at the end of their 100 year life. And we can still take those floorboards because they were nailed in, can lift them up, sand them back, reseal them. And if we nail them in again to our apartment buildings, they can just continue to live that life. So that's a really beautiful material, um, just to think about the life cycle of that. And also Timber's ability to connect and have warmth to, um, to an interior. And so people really appreciate and they're comfortable with that material and they will keep it. Uh, there's, there's challenges with some materials that you select. For example, um, keeping in mind um, uh, the... Um, it, the cost of a building as well. So multi-res in Victoria, we build largely concrete structures at this at this current stage. Uh, concrete is um, is uh, very um, heavily high in embodied carbon, and so 
but it is affordable and quick to build with. And so in keeping the price of um, housing down, it's something that we have to use and be very mindful of how we use it. So using concrete where it only has um, a structural purpose, but also could be trying to make the most of that material. We can reduce the carbon by um, increasing the amount of recycled content in it and making that very important that that's not something that you can substitute. But then also there's using the, the thermal um, potential for thermal mass and the ability that concrete can have to store, um, retain heat. Or also just the, the robustness of the materials. So where we have the concrete, don't cover it with a, a superficial material because it's beautiful, it will last a long time and it doesn't need that extra layer of um, material over that. Um, thinking about um, exceeding trends and and ongoing durability, um, other others can come down to the smallest detail. So, tapware and hardware is is a solid traditionally solid brass, and we apply coatings to that. So, um, coatings that are toxic in their manufacturing, so such as chrome plating um, and all these other coating materials when you know, one thing that we did in one of our first buildings was was to get all the suppliers to provide their hardware before it goes to that coating stage. And then brass, which patinas beautifully, the finish will not erode away. It should be even more beautiful in 100 years' time. And as a solid metal without those coatings, it can also be recycled easily without any processes to remove those um, materials. I think... On the idea of sort of designing for a building typology, on the opposite side of that um, is something like a retail or a commercial fit out, which has a really short potential lifespan. It may last long, but but the, the chance are, it could be something that lasts no more than five years. And so designing for dis disassembly and recyclability is extremely important. Um, so, Example, we've just done a recent collaboration with ANZ where we're looking at their branches, which are very transient in um, their duration in a space. And so looking at flooring materials that are completely floating floors, that, and then create, we created a kit of parts with them, which were made of materials that, um, you know, timber that's FSC certified and um, still quite robust and strong, but all the parts that go into these fit-outs um, are a kit of parts that are completely connecting to a site and highly adaptable to another site. So these, basically, um, these the, the branches that you can play with the parts and set out a layout that suits that site, and then everything can be lifted and reinstated into a new ANZ um, customer branch. So very different approaches to design and also material selection to play into that typology. Well, I've been to a couple of Breed's projects and the um, material honesty and rawness is just really elegant and very beautiful. Um, Alex, in your multi-res projects, do you take a similar approach or? Yeah, no, c certainly. Um, couldn't agree more with everything you said, Bettina. Um, I suppose for us, uh, when it comes to building longevity, uh, there are really two forms of longevity uh, when it comes to architecture. There's a building that lasts through time 
one might think of the Pantheon in Rome or something like that. It's lasted a fair while. Um, and then there's also a tradition of building that lasts through time. Um, a good example that every architecture student learns in their early education is the Issei Shrine in Japan, uh, which is a, a shrine that they entirely knock down and entirely rebuild every 20 odd years uh, with all of its traditional joinery, all of its beautiful natural materials. Um, so that, that's a tradition of building in itself that lasts through time. Uh, on our work uh, with the Prince's Trust, um, we try to promote both forms of uh, endurance. So the material selections that we use uh, at Galib, uh, we're using a fully timber framed uh, structure above ground level uh, and then traditional uh, solid brick masonry um, construction as well uh, with traditional detailing uh, around cornices, drip moulds, all that sort of thing uh, to, to learn from the best of the past uh, and bring it forward into the future uh, to make that building last. Um, in terms of the actual tradition of building, uh, we're always trying to foster um, working with natural materials, uh, inert materials, materials that don't move around, don't shift, don't wear out over time, but are stable and will last through time. And we try to, we try to adopt traditional ways of working with those materials. Uh, in Australia and all around the world, traditional building cultures uh, have millennia, and in Australia, tens of millennia of, uh, of years of experience working with materials and getting the best function out of those materials that you possibly can. Uh, so that's something we really promote in all of our developments. We try and foster uh, craftsmanship uh, and working with natural materials as far as possible. Um, that's, that's really what we try and do at the Prince's Trust. Yeah. I mean, Paul, your work is a different scale and context, but the principles would be quite similar. Right? Yeah, I think that, that's correct, yeah. Um, Lucy, yeah, the, you know, with our, this, um, these crises of, you know, resource, uh, climate, biodiversity, they're really starting to bite now. And this idea that, certainly not in your practices, but uh, we see too much around this idea that you can just um, you accept the need to do regular and major repairs and um, upgrades to poorly performing uh, or poorly enduring buildings. Uh, so, you know, build and you rebuild and you uh, build new and you build bigger every time. That simply is going to... The, the natural earth systems that su sort of support our civilization. They, they are just going to collapse with that abuse. And particularly if it's anything of the order of the statistics that you put forward at the start, Lucy, it's really quite, quite frightening. And so absolutely endurance and longevity, they're, they're really of materials. Uh, it's absolutely key. And not only in the way you select them, but also how you detail them into the build to get a long life. It's really crucial. So it could be something as simple as some exterior timber protecting the end grain of that so that it won't rot because that's where timber start, usually starts to fail. And then also, um, which I know uh, I think Bettina mentioned too, just flexibility by design, how critical that is. So that we can find ourselves just lightly and delicately and really smartly just tending to buildings a little bit like an edible garden. Uh, rather than just knocking them down and you know being really quite brutal with them because they don't quite meet our purpose, something that's a little bit imperfect is just fine in this in the, in, in this situation we find ourselves in. Uh, and they, the buildings, as you guys said, you know they need to have a really effective uh, and continual use, not only not over decades, which so many people have come to accept, but over centuries, many centuries. Up north where I was working, we, um, which I guess is what Lucy's referring to, um, 
we we use materials that we could find freely in the bush, so things like just stone. Uh, we used earth and clay. Um, we crushed anthill because that's a very good cementitious material. Uh, we used local bamboo uh, and pole timbers, a lot of pole timbers. And if we were to mill timbers, we just use a simple chainsaw for that. And um, so we were able to avoid imports from afar, which found their, their way up on other building projects in, uh, that run by others up north. And they come with huge cost. And as we sort of come, we've come to learn even more acutely these days, they come with a high environmental impact, high environmental impact, yep. And, um, and so these people, even though they had very little by way of financial resources, you know, um, on today's grounds, they might have had a couple of thousand dollars rather than hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we're, they were able to really trade that, uh, if it was that, that lack with um, people, you know, using hard work and sweat equity and a real long-term commitment to sort of work their way into home ownership. And that was really, really quite satisfying. We've got another crisis in Australia, which is housing affordability, and particularly as that affects young people. Uh, it's, it's really quite concerning, I think, and it's, it's, an, it's unjust. And I'm not seeing that, um, you know, these high-tech um, manufacturing or prefabricated building systems that uh, people are, are really keen on these days, I'm not yet seeing them delivering a low-cost dwelling experience to young people. And so... Also, community self-build, that's labour-intensive. Prefab high-tech, that's capital-intensive. And so, on, just on the grounds of, on, on the measure of social sustainability, I'm yet to give my sort of vote to the high-tech and the, um, that's just me personally though. Um, and, I, and it's fair, I do work on small projects, on larger projects, I think um, there are other dynamics in place. Well, I think that would be an interesting point for you guys to give your view because the low-tech manual um, construction processes have obvious merits, but then how do you scale that to an urban environment? So, your thoughts? Yeah, it's definitely um, a challenge and particularly in the last couple of years where with inflation and building costs rising really quickly. And so, to deliver multi-residential um, projects that are still affordable, um, you're constantly having to change your process to adapt to that. So, um, the materials that you would have readily be, were readily available or you could use um, maybe even just five years ago are just not affordable to um, apply in, in current design. So, I'll go back to my timber floor example. Uh, to do a timber floor over a concrete slab requires you to install a, a subfloor. The, they have to be um, nailed into a frame underneath if we don't want to be gluing the floor down and because the timber needs to move um, as it does naturally. And so, but the labour required to install that and then the holding cost of, of finding a large batch of recycled timber, um, builders don't want to take the risk of, of holding onto that material too early um, in the sequence of the pro project. And so, that's a material that we've had to reassess, okay, what can we do now that requires less labour on site so it can still be affordable? And um, cork flooring is something that we're recently looking at because you can lay it down as a floating floor. You eliminate the need for 
um, underlay, so you're still trying to reduce your materials that you're consuming in the process. It comes from trees that are stripped, so they're not chopped down to be produced. Um, it is an important imported materials, so we've lost some of the um, the key properties that we love and the, the things about recycled timber that we loved, but you know, we always also have to to weigh up that what is the cost of this apartment, and it's really important. Um, and so I guess LM, taking out some of the labour has actually become, unfortunately, um, a sad reality to, to the current situation. So it's some some level of mass production and efficiency in production is um, is is what we have to look to 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 keep delivering at a certain price. Yeah, that's couldn't agree more, Bettina. Um, I think when it comes to uh, sort of upscaling um, low tech building into the modern sort of highly complex, highly capital intensive uh, modern building industry. Um, there's established ways of working with those low-tech materials that have been built up over millennia, once again. Uh, ways of working with stone, timber, traditional joinery techniques, uh, traditional stonemasonry techniques that have established uh, you know, long-lasting long uh, ways of building. That, that can be upscaled and applied in a modern uh, built building industry. Uh, we've got, take for example, um, stonemasonry. Um, we run a program up at the University of Queensland called the Enduring Design Masterclass, uh, where we take architecture students, university students, bachelor's and master's students, and put a chisel in their hand and get them to work actually building stuff out of stone, timber, brick, all that sort of thing. Um, they're, they're learning how to do it the traditional way, and then they're also now learning how to do it the modern way, with our massive capabilities for CNC milling machines, grasshopper, uh, you know, Rhino, all these, all these wonderful new technologies that we have, uh, we, we're now in a position where we can take that traditional knowledge for building long-lasting edifices and apply it in a modern building context uh, cheaply in a low-labour low sort of way um, and done in a way that is fitting for a contemporary you know, environment. Um, so that's something we really, really push at Princess Trust Australia. Uh, we're currently uh, rebuilding a community hall on Kangaroo Island that burnt down in the um, Black Summer bushfires. Uh, and a big part of that, it's on Kangaroo Island, very expensive to ship materials uh, and you know, have workmanship on site. Um, we're doing a lot of prefabrication, uh, but that's all prefabrication uh, with, a, with a sort of traditional profile using natural materials um, that have you know, low carbon embodied energy and are also meaningful and uh, significant for the community uh, which uh, is going to use that 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 community hall? Uh, so there are there are way, there are ways around um, labour, uh, and there are still ways to um, to construct uh, using natural materials, low tech ways of building, but on a grander scale. Um, there there are those ways out there. Yep. I think um, what Paul was sort of alluding to is that there there is also you know there's risking or there's there is prefab um, construction that that the issue with um, a large majority of it is the inability to restore it in place once it's on site. Is it appropriate for the site and the context and the user? And if, I guess, the underlying issue, if you can't restore it in site um, or you can't completely dis disassemble and recycle it or or if there's even a desire to, there's a bit of, that's a bit of a greenwash thing that I have a bit of a thing about is that a material is recyclable but 
at the end of the day is in 50 years' time when someone's left this building and apparently that carpet tile could be recycled, but I don't know if that person's going <laughs> to take it to the, the right place that it has to go to, maybe back to Europe. <laughs> so, um, you know, really questioning even the, the credentials of materials that they say that they have, just thinking about it practically... What's going to happen to this? Um, is someone going to care for it? Is someone going to actually think twice or not? Um, and designing for that. Um, what's interesting, I think, uh, it's just my sort of observations of the building industry, and I am thinking particularly about small-scale housing, not the you know multi-res stuff, um, which still is probably the bulk of building industry in Australia is all these houses out in the burbs. And when I look at it, I think there's been a really quite a sad de-skilling of tradespeople um, in, in, um, in those environments. If we just take, because we've been talking a bit about timber, if you just look at that, for example, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a little... Um, short video, you can see it on YouTube, it's a, a Housing Commission video from about 1940, uh, just after the war, uh, so late 40s must be, and they uh, just showed the, how they're building the houses, which was in the inner and the middle suburbs at that time, how guys with just a handsaw and a hammer and a couple of nails, they were putting well-constructed houses together much faster than they go together these days. And, and there's, to me, that uh, speaks a lot. Uh, I know a project I did up in um, the Macedon Ranges was this underground library and it had uh, a lot of LVL or laminated timber anyway, an engineered timber product um, that sort of radiated out and um, that looked like a quite a complex organic forms. And everyone who was involved in the design, the engineer said, look, that's a job for CNC machining and, and high-tech kind of um, fabrication. And the builder goes, nah, I've got a farm shed. I've got, a, um, I've got a, a reciprocal saw on the tight bits and I've got a circular saw I can wander around and I've got a drill. And he, he put these things together, I think in three weeks, just him and his apprentice. And they came up beautifully just as well. So I guess they're the sort of what I'm kind of trying to uh, suggest there. But it's, it's not it. I know we're talking about very different um, kind of you know, um, building typologies. But um, I, I do get sad when I get... Because, again, even if you invest more in labour, it's not going to sink the planet. Whereas at the, the sort of, um, you know, capital-intensive and, and material-intensive um, architecture can do that. And um, I... I um, there's certainly... There are issues around, um, you know, if we were to scale this into an urban context, the sort of stuff that I used to do in rural areas, well, certainly you need to take care of um, the land resource from which the materials are procured because that can then become quite intensive. But there are ways around that. Um, in years ago, I, I was involved, many years ago, a lot in earth brick-making enterprises in, um, in around Melbourne, in uh, middle and outer suburbs of Melbourne. And, uh, and they were going really well. And I don't actually understand why that fell out of favour and why it lost sort of fashion. It's no longer fashionable to build in earth brick in, in Melbourne. But there's some beautiful enduring buildings at War Park, uh, um, just in Brunswick, I can think of one. Um, and uh, so there's that. And yet, and yet 
timber when you when you're working with timber locally, uh, you know, drawing on the best resources of some uh, wood that might need to be salvaged from town or local farmers growing their own wood, and that's been going through series fair wood again up in uh, there over in Preston. That's really popular and it's in favour at the moment. I'm not really understanding why 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 the difference. Uh, well, this topic of the building arts and skilled craftsmen is of particular interest to me, um, as I think that the aesthetic nature of material choice bears importantly on the durability and longevity of a building, as people are motivated to protect and maintain buildings that they treasure and love. Alex, um, a unique, well, something that stands out about your architectural education compared to most Australian graduates is your grounding in classical language from the Intbau summer schools. Um, and then, obviously, the building arts is a huge part of the education programs that you run with the Prince's Trust. What motivated you to seek out this education? Um, and what's the relationship you see between classical language and knowledge and sustainability? Yeah, thanks, Lucy. Great question. Um, yeah, it's something that we promote uh, as part of another organisation that I'm also a part with, uh, INTBAU, the International Network for Traditional Building Architecture and Urbanism. Um, it's a, quite a mouthful of an acronym, but it's a good one. Um, it's all, all about promoting the traditional uh, crafts, traditional architectural skills, traditional materials uh, in all the different countries in which we have chapters. Uh, we've got chapters in almost 50 countries around the world now, uh, from Pakistan to China. And the motivation of each of those chapters is to promote the local traditions and local knowledge of how to work with materials uh, to build in a sustainable way that are found in their traditions. Uh, in Pakistan, that's earth building, a massive component of their, their traditional sort of approach to building is, is using heavy earth. Um, and in China, there's a grand tradition of timber, timber construction. Uh, there's traditions all over the world. Um, my, my architectural education, I uh, was very focused on uh, the novel, the new, uh, the innovative, um, without much of a focus on looking to the past. And as part of Intbao's sort of mission, uh, we believe that you have to look backwards in order to look forwards. Uh, you need to learn from the best of the past, uh, learn how to learn those traditional ways of working with those natural materials uh, and bring that to bear in contemporary practice. Um, so unfortunately, there's, there's not a great deal of education around um, traditional trades or traditional ways of working with materials. I think the average um, traditional trades, tradesman or tradesman who works on heritage buildings or understands more com something more complex than a brick veneer or a single skin, you know, brick. Um, uh, the average age of those tradesmen is over 60 years old now. Um, there's a whole generation of knowledge that's disappearing uh, and we're really about bringing that back into the architectural education, bringing that back into the way that we build um, because this, this culture of treating a tradesman as a buffoon, basically, and um, saying, you know, specifying everything, he's just there to put, to put together the Lego on site. Um, that's, a, uh, that's an unsustainable way of building. It relies heavily on you know, international uh, supply chains, uh, international commerce and capital. Um, and so we are, yeah, in order to learn uh, those sort of, uh, that, that, that way of doing things from the past, uh, you really do have to go abroad at the moment. Um, there's a number of summer schools that uh, we run as part of Interbau. Um You can go to Sweden and learn uh, the classical tradition over there. Uh, you can go to Pakistan, Earth, Earth Building. You can go to Portugal. There's a number of uh, like four to eight week kind of programs over there. Um, and we're running one in Australia. I referred to it before, the Enduring Design Masterclass. Uh, three week program 
uh, teaching architectural graduates, um, or architectural students, I should say, traditional trades and Australia's uh, traditional ways of building from indigenous influences and perspectives through to things like yeah, hardcore stonemasonry, getting them all covered in dust. Um, so that, I really had to go abroad for that, but now we're starting to bring that back uh, to Australia uh, here. Epic. I think that's <laughs> such important work. I'm very excited to see what you do. Um, yeah. Bettina, I'd say that um, from what I know of Breathe's work, your engagement with heritage and context is quite playful. Um, do you want to speak to your aesthetic ambitions for your projects, just in general? Um, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess the approach with heritage, um, one, like, the most sustainable thing you can do is to build nothing, really. Um, and so, when, if you are building, being conscious of, of what you're building and what you're adding, so what what materials you're consuming and what impact you're creating in the place that the building um, exists. So, um, understanding the context of the building, the existing building that you're working with and um, the community around that is really important. Um, finding, understanding its purpose in um, the current time and the future is also really important too. So it may be that it's not, it's, it ha it's creating a new life for this building so that people will care for it and make sure that it lasts even longer. So being very, really, really sensitive to restore that and not compete with that, but also make it, I guess, to give it, to be reborn. Um, yeah, I think um, working with existing buildings is is extremely important and thinking if you can use a building before uh, you decide to demolish it. Um, or if you do, what can you take for that from that building and repurpose those materials in a meaningful way to so you don't lose the story of what that place was. Okay, uh, well, within the scope of this short conversation, um, we've seen how varied the valid and effective approaches to sustainability can be, um, and also how complex the issue is. The issue with this is that it creates um, quite a large scope for greenwashing um, and false claims of sustainability. So how can we um, tune in our bullshit radars and filter through the conflicting information or false claims of sustainability? Um, Paul, did you want to provide a bit of context about this, or...? Yeah, yeah, look, I'll, yeah, I would. Um, so, to try to sort of, yeah, uh, just look at the, the this greenwash and, the, and tuning in our bullshit meters, um, if you just take just one aspect of, you know, sustainable design and futures, and let's, let's just talk about, think about the carbon footprint of materials because that's a hot topic in sustainability discourse, and it's also a, a solid part of greenwash. And um, I reckon it's safe to say that fired clay bricks, um, concrete products that are bound with um, Portland cement-based um, um, material, um, steel and timber, they really have the greatest carbon footprint of all the materials we're going to use in, in construction uh, in our built environment. And there's two reasons for that. One is those four that I've just listed, they um, are obviously used in the greatest amount in, in our built environment, just generally speaking, if we, if we take all of Melbourne, uh, for example. 
And the second reason is, is because they're, those three timbers, putting timber aside just for a moment, the other three are all produced in, at very, very high temperatures in furnaces and kilns, super, super high temperatures. To get those high temperatures, you've got to shove in, at these days, at the moment, a ballistic amount of fossil fuel energy to get up to those temperatures. So those products have the most massive carbon footprint. And, um, and we, if so, if supplies of these three materials, so your bricks and your, your concrete cement, or Portland cement-based concretes and your um, steel, if the suppliers for those are trying to tell you that their products are, um, uh, have a low carbon footprint, I would, I would say bullshit to them unless un, or until they can demonstrate to you or prove to you that they, in their manufacture of those products, they've transitioned almost completely to renewable energies. And by that, I'm thinking particular sun, wind or geothermal, not bioenergy. Um, so we need to really make that really fast um, shift uh, in the future. And I'm really very anxious around that. Um, that we're going to be able to do that within the time frame that we've got left to do some really quite massive carbon drawdown that's required to, so we can um, avoid runaway climate change. And that's if you follow the science. They're telling us we've got 10 to 15 years. And Lucy told us that the building industry or is responsible for 40... or building activity is responsible to 40, for 40% of our global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there are lots of good alternatives, um, uh, unfired clay bricks, uh, and then using binders in concrete, which um, Bettina touched on, that are not based on calcination of limestone. Lots of good ideas. Now, timber, that is seasoned in cooler kilns, and, um, but it can have a really high carbon footprint, possibly the highest carbon footprint of all materials that we might want to have in our homes and our buildings. Uh, it depends completely on where and how it's sourced. So carbon, it can be um, locked in timber construction because all you know, people tell us there's carbon locked in those, uh, in all the wood. It's sequestered from the atmosphere in the forest and then we lock it up in our buildings. And that's some, some of that's offset by the processing energy that goes into making, getting the timber to the, from, the, from the forest to the site. And in particular, it's in kiln drying. And so... Timber industry, it touts this really climate positive status for, um, for, for timber products. And that then has us as architects, not you guys necessarily at all, in fact, um, but the bulk of the, even the eco architects saying we've got to shove a whole big architects doing big institutional and commercial buildings, shoving shite loads of timber into their builds because it's carbon positive and that can get them back towards a carbon neutral status. In the, in, the, in the building in its life. But that logic, it's a flawed logic because it, it, completely re, it completely ignores the fact that when you harvest timber, you're creating a massive forest debt. So you're, the carbon that's stored in the forest and the potential for carbon sequestration that that forest has, so actually CO2 sequestration, that's lost in the process of timber harvesting. And it's gonna take much longer than this short window that we've got to, to do some serious carbon drawdown before that forest regrows 
in amount that gets it, even vaguely gets it anywhere near to where it was at the moment. And the difference there is in the order of 20 to 50 fold. So it's really important that if we're going to use new timber as opposed to recycled timber, if we're going to use that in our, in our builds, it's so important that we avoid getting any wood from cold climate forests, plantation or otherwise, or natural forests, and certainly no natural forest anywhere in the world. It's so important. And then, but, and then if we talk quickly about just steel, so steel, it, we're right to really worry about the, incredible, the incredibly potent embodied energy in, in some weighty steel construction, big steel beams and columns or highly reinforced concrete. But at the same time, you could get a piece of corrugated iron, which provides a lot of broad cover uh, over for some cladding, and it's um, it's uh, you know um, very very almost zero maintenance, and it's going to have quite a long life, and it's doing all that in half a millimetre of thickness of steel. So I'd argue in that case, steel's actually quite uh, a responsible material to use. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Paul. It's uh, horses for courses, really. Um, when we talk about uh, greenwashing um, and you know environmentally sustainable design, uh, you could have the most you know six-star, green-star rated tower with clad all the way up to the to the top of it in our solar panels and all the rest. Uh, but if you're if you're constructing that and then knocking it down again within 30 years, uh, that is not a sustainable building. I think one of the the, the best antidotes uh, to this to this greenwashing um, sort of scourge that the, that's entering the building industry at the moment is to talk about longevity um, and appropriate use of materials. Steel, highly carbon intensive, massive embodied energy, uh, but it lasts a very long time when applied in the correct way. Um, same with stone, timber, all, the, all these materials. Um, embodied energy um, is not something that happens once. It's over the course, the lifespan of that building. If we look at our... Um, if we look at, say, I mentioned before, the Pantheon in Rome, uh, that's a high, that's that's pretty high embodied energy. That's a lot of people working for a very long time, putting a lot of man hours into a lot of concrete and putting it all together. But that building has lasted thousands of years. Um, the embodied energy of that building has been contained there for 2,000 years and perhaps another 10,000 years, depending on whether the world ends or not. Um, so. Embodied energy uh, is, is a great, great thing to talk about, but in the context of how long that building lasts and how long that energy will be embodied for. Um, that's my little point. I th oh, sorry. Um, I'm just, just running on there. I think you're right and I, the, um, in, in a lot of what you're saying, but we are in a different world now. In, when the Pantheon was built, the next 2,000 years... Sorry, I'm not sure on the numbers, but anyway, the next 2,000 years, um, or, or the vast proportion of the, of the next 2,000 years, uh, we had very little impact on our planet. And it's only really in the last 200 years and now in the last 50 years where we've really ramped up just carbon emissions, if we just stay with carbon for a minute and just even ignoring biodiversity um, loss and uh, issues like that. But it's, it's, we're in a different and much more acute... I, I, I'm sorry to say we're in a really acute state now. And it's what we do right now with the materials we inject into new builds or new materials we inject in particularly into buildings that can really, that can sink the planet or save the planet, you know, depending on how it's done. Um, what happens in the operation of that building or even the longevity of that building is actually, you know, not really 
um, we may not be there to see that to, to see that happen. So um, that's my only uh, rider on that. Yeah, and which makes the resilience of those materials all the more important. Definitely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Correct. And 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 if we can find ways to, you know, reuse. Um, buildings, you know, materials from other buildings that may have to come down, or just tend to buildings really lightly and accept that they only 90% or 80% meet our needs aesthetically or functionally, but our kids or our grandkids are going to really thank us for that approach. I was going to um, sort of stem me off what you were talking about earlier about looking back to move forward. And I think, you know, sustainability and and sustainable design, it can get really technical and complicated. And there's all systems that can measure the carbon footprint of a building or, um, yeah, can be complicated. But really, if you think back to passive design principles, it can be applied to any single building. And so buildings of all scales from um, single residential to, you know, big civil buildings, um, they had to rely on passive principles for them to, to work. They had to work with the materials they had. They had to do, um, you know, have heating and cooling systems that didn't rely on, you know, complicated systems. And so I think just that simple mentality of just um, questioning um, those systems and just doing things like orientating the building correctly and insulating it, using the right materials for that, but also to overcome greenwashing is is really just asking simple questions um, from an interior design perspective. Like we were, we were the the guidelines that we um, that we've published. They really just walk you through a process that we do. It's really simple. It's it's about where is the material from, how is the material made. Um, how do you use the material and then what happens to it at the end of the life? It's basically what it is. And we, um, over the last 10 years, we were asking our suppliers all these questions. Like, is this material harmful to people that have it in their indoor um, environment? Comes down to a, a technical little test of the VOC levels of that, but provide me that information. And, um, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't get that information. The reps wouldn't know wouldn't know that, they weren't educated in that, it wasn't what they were selling, but there's been, on a positive note, a huge shift in, um, I guess as, you know, sustainable design becomes a bit of a trend, like, great. If it's a trend that really helps us go in the right direction, um, if it if it can sell, then then let's work with that um, and, and people become more and more aware of it. Um, the same with carbon carbon neutral products so more and more products are coming onto the market that are carbon neutral in terms of buying carbon offsets it's it's highly bullshit at the moment um, but I guess the process to become carbon neutral you have to go through technical certification to do that and so that supplier has to really question the process of what they're doing how they're extracting the material to make the offset cheaper for them so they can still be competitive in the market. So at least the thinking behind that, the certification needs to catch up um, 
and that will start to happen and carbon offsets will start to become more expensive as they're more in demand. Um, but at least the processes of just thinking about the way that we're doing things are going to get better. Um, so as much as it's it's so required and everyone has to change right now, the industry has to change extremely quickly, um, there is we are in a movement of that happening. It's a movement of this time and um, hopefully, you know, <laughs> we'll get moving really quick. <laughs> but it's a, it's a positive change, I think. Um, and people are more educated, majority, or, you know, some against greenwashing. Well, I think we have time for a couple of questions, if anybody had a question. Um, Uh, we'll grab your microphone. Um, do you have a, a vision for um, a solution for the housing shortage um, and expense for the future in Australia? Um, it's, it's a wonderful question. That's a, I'm fiddling... A, a, I've just started um, working again with some young people who have this issue right at the centre of their um, of their hearts and, and and it's around looking at different structures first of all for um, land ownership or or, or, or um, living on the land that may not be just a simple kind of that freehold title you know that you own in your own right so community um, based um, ownership of, of property and collective um, if you like, group or collective self-build projects. Um, and it's at the moment really just in um, small country towns of Victoria, but I can't see why that can't be wound up, wound into Melbourne. There were in the 1980s some wonderful programs around this where sort of, um, sort of government-supported community self-build um, and uh, they were after the 1983 bushfires or in the aftermath of the 83 bushfires and they were centred around people building with materials uh, that they could largely get on, on site uh, or, or locally, investing a huge amount of their own time and energy into construction and that reduced the, obviously the, the, the cost of labour that they had to bring in from outside. Government, this, this was the Victorian state government supporting that extremely well uh, with both technical support, finance, but it was all of a modest scale. Those people were able to pay off their homes very, very quickly because they had so little, uh, their mortgage was so low and low interest rates as well. The difference between then and now, which is really challenging, I think, is the uh, there was a deep, high level of structural unemployment at the time and the two things worked really well together in the same way as when I was working up north a lot of people had a lot of free time on their hands um, and not not they didn't have much to you know to, to live with even even dis, um, despite that and so I, I, I think there's some learning from some of those programs in the past which were politically um, vulnerable depending on who was in power the same old thing I think we really need to address this in a longitudinal way, in a way that um, governments uh, uh, um, of all sides commit to it, because it's going to be an ongoing problem. Um, and, you know, there's just, just so many more people now than there were, you know, when I mentioned like 2,000 years ago, well, there was only, there weren't so many people around. It's not that 
all these, you know, we're doing things so terribly wrong. There's just an awful lot more of us these days. And, um, and that had, creates all sorts of pressures, you know, social, economic, environmental pressures. So, yeah, the, my vision would be around uh, a collective um, rather than us all doing as at Little Islands and talking to the bank manager who doesn't really even want to answer the phone, you know, that sort of thing. So that we're not islands anymore and we can do things together. But, yeah, hope that helps. Hope that, yeah, okay. <laughs> I uh, just wanted to say uh, thanks to all the speakers uh, for a really uh, illuminating discussion on uh, sustainability. Um, my question actually dovetails nicely with uh, the uh, previous questioner, um, but it's for probably Alex, I think. Uh, so I think one of the arguments they make for prefabricated designs uh, is that it's cheaper. And I think a lot of what the modern world is driven by is economics. Uh, you've spoken of traditional building design. My understanding is that that can be a lot more expensive. And so if we're going to answer the problem of the housing affordability crisis, where does traditional building design factor into that? Yeah, no, fantastic question. Uh, I guess it depends on your time scale. Uh, it's cheaper for the developer. Uh, it's cheaper for uh, all the investors. Uh, it's, cheap, it's cheaper in that short period of time during construction and then to sale. Uh, but the long-term consequence of it is not cheaper. It's a lot more expensive across the economy uh, than immediately uh, in, in, the, in the back pocket of the developer. That said, uh, in the back pocket of de the developer where things actually matter um, and money actually matters, uh, there are now, as I alluded to before, uh, prefabricated methods for using that traditional knowledge uh, and bring it in into the modern world. Um, I used the example before of stone masonry uh, and stone. Stone is an inert material, doesn't move much at all, uh, is there, you, you build it, if you protect it from the weather, it'll be there forever pretty much. Um, there are ways of working with that material in a modern way that require very little, little labour, uh, very little you know, technical input. Um, all you really need to do is get a profile or something like that, put, it, put the stone in a CNC machine, ship it to site and put it up. Uh, that's, that's all starting to happen uh, in the modern building industry. And there's incredibly exciting things happening if you take stone uh, and our sort of parametric design uh, sort of capabilities that we have at the moment. Um, it's going to be possible to you know, print off a Gothic cathedral if you would like to do that um, and, and prefab it and build it up, you know. Um, so those traditional methods, they historically have been labour intensive. Um, and that's, that's, what, uh, that's why we have this whole prefabrication revolution that happened after the Second World War. Uh, but with our increase in technology, our, our, the growth of our abilities to build whatever we like, uh, that's, that, that, um, that sort of economy uh, is, is no longer as relevant as it once was and getting less and less so. Um, you look at Zaha Hadid or something like that, you know, it's um, glitzy, crazy architecture, but a lot of that's just um, printed off, you know. Um, using concrete, but yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just curious about your knowledge of where the earth building world is at in terms of like having stands and standards and codes ready and whether it will penetrate the conventional, conventional styles of building. And in the architecture world? 
Yeah. Um, in a, so overseas, you know, they're in, in places like the Middle East, there are 10, 15-storey um, earth buildings, uh, mud brick. They've, um, there's no special other kind of hybrid things happening with steel or concrete behind those, uh, and they've been standing for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, certainly in earthquake-prone areas, there are issues. But if we just take, say, Melbourne, for example, I guess, is that what you're thinking, like all Melbourne or the main cities of Australia? Yeah. So in the main cities of Australia where, um, you know, uh, low to medium rise construction, which is still the bulk of what goes on, um, there is, there's no reason for it in, uh, not to, to, to use that a lot more, particularly in this crisis we've got. There's so much to uh, argue for it. The, the, I, sus the, I suspect a little bit of the, um, the dip in, in popularity of, of earth brick construction in particular uh, was attached to, firstly, um, the, the changes in the building code that if it wasn't uh, a, a, a basic building, uh, or sorry, a conventional building method like brick veneer or something like that, it, you had to get into all sorts of deemed to comply um, analyses to get your building approval. And that's really an issue. So every person, I've had that, we had this at Mullum Creek with rammed earth construction. Every home that was built in rammed earth there independently had to go through a very expensive deemed to comply process to get building approval. That needs to change. So now, anyway, but the problem with rammed earth is that uh, two of those three buildings, we didn't have an influence on it because the, in the uh, requirements on that project uh, that was tied up in a section 173 agreement, we didn't include rammed earth as a product, as, sorry, as a building material that used uh, Portland cement, but all the contractors put about 14%, 10 to 14% Portland cement into that. It's not in any way a, a, a sustainable building material. It's just dirty concrete. So, um, but there's no reason whatsoever why you can't build with rammed earth without Portland cement, and these codes have forced that into it, and that's really tragic. Uh, there needs to be some sort of uh, direction from above on that, I think, um, around codes. The other thing was the thermal performance requirements. So a lot of earth brick construction was single skin, just just mud brick and nothing either side of it. And that was um, was okay before we had, um, you know, reasonably respectable energy efficiency um, mandatory standards, minimum standards. Uh, and mud brick works really well uninsulated in a climate where you have very hot, hot days and very cold nights, and it sort of sits in the middle. It exudes the coolth of the night back by day and the warmth of the day back by night, and um, and that's really uh, works there. But here, where we've got um, our design internal temperatures in Melbourne are often well below, oh sorry, well above the external temperatures, you get an incredible heat loss. But there's all sorts of ways of using earth brick construction or rammed earth construction with cavities in the middle that are highly insulated or reverse mud brick construction where you have a, a skin of something else and insulation on the outside. There might be some corrugated iron and some battens. And, um, uh, and it, it, in terms of uh, structural adequacy, there's nothing at all um, problematic around the compressive strength of, of a reasonably made puddled mud clay brick or rammed earth construction. There's nothing there that really should be limiting it in, in, by way of codes, um, you may need an engineer. But if once this, if this was, if you build a, 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 
uh, a brick veneer home, no one's going to ch challenge you for the structural integrity of that if you roughly do it right, you know? Whereas they will every time a building surveyor if you're building in earth. And that needs to change and there needs to be sort of default standards or deemed to comply construction details that are there as built into the codes or sit beside the codes so that if someone follows those, they can then build with those materials. I think that's where it's uh, where it needs to go. I hope that helps. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think we're out of time for further questions. Um, but Bettina, I thought you ended on a very cheerful note. And I think it's a positive sign of changing times that you're all here on your Saturday afternoons in 30 plus degree heat, listening to a conversation about material, sustainable material choices in the construction industry. So um, thank you for your interest and your attendance. And thank you to our panelists. Um, your forthright engagement with these problems is hugely inspiring. Uh, and with people like you on the job, I'm less worried about the future. Um, <laughs> so thank you for your time um, and your work. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.